good evening, everybody, and welcome to the LSE, and welcome to this uh, first event for the Forum of European Philosophy of this term. Uh, I'm Simon Lindening, I'm the director of the Forum, and uh, I'm delighted to welcome here today Catherine Flickshu, from who's also from the LSE. She's also a philosopher, but she's, like me, a philosopher who's secreted herself outside of a philosophy department. She works in the Department of Government here, but I, I don't know what you think, but I think of you as a philosopher. Do you still think of yourself as a philosopher? I don't care whether I'm a theorist or a philosopher. Uh -huh, That's okay. how I've settled it. Well, um, my, my uh, um, background in knowing uh, her work is from this book, which is called Kant and Modern Political Philosophy, so, and, and it's definitely a work of philosophy. It's not too long either, and it is absolutely brilliant. Um, and the the theme that she's talking about isn't from this book, but the person she's talking about is Kant. Um, now, uh, I was just asked actually by a, a member of the audience uh, who I think, who I personally think of as uh, the greatest ever philosopher, who you put a, at the top of the ridiculous league table of uh, great philosophers, and actually quite without hesitation, I would say Kant. And um, one of the reasons I give for this is could be described as somebody else has actually with the letter X. That uh, what Kant managed to do somehow, unbelievably, was some kind of drawing together of the lines in philosophy that had belonged to its history prior to himself, to bring them together into some kind of singularity at that cross point of the of the cross of which is his own work. And not and, and that's that's one that's a striking achievement. Anybody who could achieve that kind of a V is a great philosopher. But Kant's outstanding greatness is that he's not a V, he's an X, because after Kant, everything that comes after Kant, as it were, flows from that singularity too. So much of even what we do today in philosophy is best understood as post-Kantian. And so Kant not only produced this incredible synthesis of, of thought in the history of philosophy going back to its roots in, in Greek, Greek, Greek classical philosophy in, in Plato and Aristotle and so on, but also has, has, has provided us with this most astonishing legacy uh, where for nearly anybody who's doing philosophy today, a certain kind of relationship to Kant is unavoidable, and a debt to Kant is, in, is uh, um, impossible to, uh, to forego. Um, so it's wonderful that we're talking about Kant, and it's wonderful that Catherine has agreed to uh, steer us through a text which she's found particularly thought-provoking. And in this series, the uh, provocations <coughs> series from the Forum for European Philosophy, what we want to do is to uh, not invite an academic to give an academic paper on their current research, but to uh, talk with you uh, about a text that they themselves have found particularly thought-provoking, and with the hope that you'll be provoked, as it were, in turn, that, that you too will find something to think about and to leave after this event. So, uh, Catherine will have chosen a text which she'll, she'll refer to on and off through her, her talk, and that will go on for about 50 minutes. And then after that, there'll be an opportunity for you to raise questions and make contributions in turn. Um, 
So, first of all, then, uh, delighted to have you here, Catherine, and, and I'll leave it to you to tell us something about Kat. Thanks. thanks very much. And let me just say that uh, I'm delighted in turn to be here, and thanks very much um, uh, for the invitation and the opportunity to talk to non-Kantians about something I love to talk, to, talk, talk about. Um, I should probably start with an apology, because only uh, at lunchtime I was moaning to Simon and later to a colleague of mine about how probably no one would turn up to something on Kant, uh, and especially something as esoteric as uh, innate right in Kant. And uh, Simon confirmed my worries because he said, yes, and look at the weather, uh, so it'll be even worse than you think. And, uh, and here, uh, here you all are, which, uh, which rather frightens me in turn because I hadn't expected such a, uh, such a big turnout. And of course, it is a rather specialist area. Uh, the uh, uh, Kant's doctrine of right within the body of Kant's work is a rather specialist area. And uh, the uh, idea of innate right within uh, the doctrine of right is uh, even more specialist. So for me, it's, uh, it's quite a challenge to try and um, talk uh, to people who don't pour over the text um, uh, every, uh, every day of the working week. Uh, and to uh, try to see whether I can interest you in a passage that I um, find intriguing um, uh, but also extremely frustrating. And I'll say a little bit more about that. Uh, when Christina uh, first invited me to come and, uh, and give this talk, she said that this, um, this series is about people talking to passages that they found particularly inspiring. And this is actually not a passage that I've found particularly inspiring in the past. The passage that I found particularly inspiring in the past in the Doctrine of Right is the postulate uh, of right. Um, but it's this passage, the, the passage on innate right, that I've been, um, that I've been um, sort of trying to understand for the last couple of years. Um, and so you might think, <laughs> it's just a short passage, and, <laughs> and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I don't understand what's going on in it. Um, and so probably most of my talk will be about how I don't understand what's going on in this passage. And, and, and you might just think, is this what they do? But yes, <laughs> it is what we do. But um, I suppose I sh uh, the reason why I've turned to it, because I suppose, in con as Simon was just saying, Kant is in many ways a household name. So even if you don't do philosophy, uh, most people will have heard about Kant in some, in some form or other. And if you do a bit of philosophy, then of course you will have heard about him even more. Uh, Kant in recent times has become uh, very topical again in political philosophy. So there has been a revival of interest in Kant's political philosophy, such that in quite recent times, more and more um, contemporary thinkers who wouldn't normally engage with the kind of stuff that, uh, that you find in Kant have actually begun to be quite interested in certain aspects of, um, of the doctrine of right. And the thing that they are particularly interested in is... Um, Kant's account of property rights in this text and the, the connection between property rights and the obligation to enter into the civil condition. So the connection in Kant between uh, the claim to property rights and the obligation to enter into the civil condition as that only condition in which property rights are possible has become uh, quite, a, um, quite a sort of trendy thing to, uh, to actually work on these days. And the reason for this is, I'll just say this briefly, is because the way Kant goes about this 
seems to offer a very uh, interesting alternative uh, uh, way uh, uh, to uh, uh, justifying political obligation to the more standard Lockean way. And I won't explain what the more standard Lockean way is. But so the first point that I want to make is that there has been this recent upsurge of interest in Kant by people who are not Kant scholars, but who are political theorists, political philosophers, interested in contemporary philosophical problems. But they see in Kant's property argument and the related account of political obligation <coughs> something very interesting going on, which they think could be of relevance to current problems in modern uh, political philosophy. Now, I've just mentioned property rights, and one could say that this text, the doctrine of right in German, this is the metaphysics of morals, it contains the doctrine of right but doesn't exhaust, uh, the metaphysics of morals doesn't exhaust it, but this text, one could say, is centrally concerned with property rights. It's centrally concerned with the justification of property rights because for Kant, that justification entails, in a certain manner of speaking, the obligation to enter into civil condition. So one could say Kant is really ultimately interested in this text in the nature or the grounds of political obligation, but he goes via the property argument. And he calls property rights acquired rights. So property rights are acquired rights in the sense that what he means by this is we do not have them innately, we don't have them uh, just by entering into the world, but we acquire them. So we acquire property rights through a certain act on our part. He contrasts these acquired rights with a class that he calls innate right. And that is a right that we have, apparently, innately, in the sense that we have this right, or we claim this right, without any prior act on our part. So what Kant, in a sense, is saying, or what, what, how one could, at a more basic level, understood him uh, to be what, he, what he's saying, is to say that if I um, claim a property right in this, then it requires an act on my part, the act of acquisition, say, as the first, as the first moment of uh, property rights. So this one is not mine innately, uh, as a result of mine not doing anything, but it requires an act that establishes my property right in this bottle. Innate right, by contrast, requires no such act. So there is, in the first instance, then this contrast or this di uh, distinction between innate right and acquired right. And we know what acquired right refers to. It, re it refers to property rights. And in fact, as I just said, the entire <coughs> argument of the doctrine of right hinges on the property rights justification. And that's generally understood. What is not generally understood is what is the relation between property rights and this thing called innate right. Yeah, that's just, that is very unclear. So it is now, by now, pretty understood that there is a connection between property rights and political obligation. It is also acknowledged that given that Kant distinguishes between innate right and acquired right, um, there has to be some sort of relationship between them, but what the nature of that relationship is, is very unclear. Now, that's at any rate what Kant scholars, on the whole, think. They think, on the whole, um, I just don't understand innate right in Kant. And the reason why they say, I just don't understand, is because of the location of uh, the mention of innate right in the text. 
and I'll come back to this in a minute. But so, can scholars, people who work very textually, they, go, they are the ones who comb the passages in the text and, and look at the same passage for two years and still don't understand it. That's, that's what a scholar is. Um, they, they say, I don't understand this. Now, in, uh, uh, people who are more inclined to use the text for their own philosophical purposes tend not to have these scruples. They tend not to say, oh, I don't understand this relation between innate right and acquired right. They tend to say rather that, okay, if we say that property rights are a type of acquired right, which requires an act on your part, and if Kant says innate right requires no act on your part, then we can just say an innate right is a right that we hold naturally. We just, as it were, come into the world with this innate right already in place. And then, of course, they will tend to say, and the connection between innate right and acquired right is the following. Um, uh, our having an innate right to freedom entails, by a complicated process of argument, it entails that we therefore also have um, rights to property. So here the claim would be that the innate right itself is something foundational. It's something we don't argue about. It's something that doesn't need to be justified because it's kind of self-evident that we come into the world equipped with this innate qua natural right. And then the, the claim would be, and we can derive from this a further right, i.e. property rights. And I think that's currently tends to be the dominant view, that we, we should treat innate right in Kant as a, as a kind of natural right, which we don't even need to argue about, which we just have. Now, I think that's a very Lockean uh, 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 approach to the text. It's, it, 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 it depends on this view that we have natural rights, that there is such a thing as natural rights. And I suspect that a lot of people in the audience will not find this particularly problematic because it's, an, it's a very intuitive thought. I think that, for instance, the human rights debate relies on this very intuitive thought that, of course, we have these natural rights. In Kant, this is problematic because... And here it gets more complicated than I want to get, but... Kant's entire philosophical system gets rid of foundational commitments of those kind. Yeah? In Kant, one can't ever say, um, we have X naturally, or X belongs to us naturally. And that's got something to do with a very complicated uh, critique, of, uh, critique of pure reason, which, as Simon has said, had a massive uh, sort of uh, destructive and constructive influence. But so from a, from, a, from a scholarly perspective, the interpretation of innate right as saying, oh, this is just Kant's way of saying that we have natural rights, looks very problematic because it then, it then looks from a scholarly perspective, it, it, it looks like this doesn't really fit with everything else I know about Kant's way of doing philosophy. Yeah? Such a foundationalist, natural approach doesn't fit with his critical philosophy, this philosophy that says there is no fundamental premise from which we start and deduce everything else. Rather, uh, everything is, a, is a, if you like, a mode of critical reflection, but there are no premises. So that's why I'm very, that's one reason why I'm very skeptical of calling the innate right in Kant uh, a natural right. It doesn't fit with the kind of philosophical argument that I associate with Kant. 
Now you may think, well, that's just too bad because you know we don't need to buy into these philosophical arguments that we associate with Kant. He might just have said something quite clever that we can use for our purposes. Yeah? And that's fair enough, in a sense, that's fair enough. But I think there's also something else that bothers me. And there, there is a, a, a late colleague of mine, he wasn't even a direct colleague of mine, I don't know whether you've ever heard of him, Brian Barry. Uh, he was a professor of political thought at the LSE for a long time. Um, not a Kantian. <laughs> the very opposite of a Kantian, uh, a utilitarian, so not particularly sympathetic to Kant. But I remember reading once um, a review essay by, uh, of his, of some, of some book, and he, he was always ferocious in his review essays um, of other people's position. And this, uh, this person that he was reviewing uh, had given some sort of Kantian argument about X. I, it doesn't really matter what. But Barry's comment there was, if that's Kant, I prefer to spell it with C. And that's always, that's always sort of stuck in my mind a little bit, because I think, if that's Kant, it's not Kant. Uh, it's not, you know, um, so there is something worrying about attributing positions to Kant that he couldn't possibly have held, given, given the other positions that he held. That's one point. The other point is that one of the nice things about struggling with a text that is in many ways very foreign to one, you know, where the thought process is in many ways very foreign to one, and where one pours over it and thinks again and again, I don't get it. One of the nice things about it is that it can, um, it can cure you of reliance on philosophical intuitions. Yeah? It can cure you of sort of thinking, oh, this seems like a natural thought, so it must be right. Yeah? And I think that's very well uh, widespread with, re with, with regard to rights reasoning. Well, that seems like a natural thought that we have natural rights, so it must be right. No further argument required. And I think that when you have a, a recalcitrant text like, like the doctrine of right, if you, do, um, uh, if you do want to understand what's going on, very often it disabuses you of um, uh, very sort of uh, intuitively self-evident assumptions that you might make because actually um, uh, it doesn't work when you bring those assumptions to the text. And then what it shows you instead is an alternative way of looking at the nature of rights in this particular case. Yeah? So that's why I think even if one thinks, oh, whether or not it fits with Kant's system overall, that's irrelevant, that's a scholarly problem, there's still reason to think whether um, uh, Kant might not mean something other than a natural right by innate right, precisely because um, doing so forces one at least to think harder about the nature of a natural right, but possibly allows one also to conceive of rights in general in a, in a rather different way. And I think that's what's going on in Kant. It's not a question of being faithful to the text. It is that as well. Yeah, if you are a nerd like me. Uh, but it is not just that. It's not even arguably primarily that. It's about learning something new. It's about having a new insight. It's about, you know, not always, uh, um, us not always repeating our philosophical prejudices to one another, but seeing whether there is some other way of looking at the world, uh, and in this case, and some other way of looking at innate right, not as a natural right. So let me then um, say a little bit more, first of all, about the innate right, what Kant says about it. Then I want to say a little bit about the peculiar position of innate right in the text, which gives rise to this feeling of, I don't understand the connection between innate and acquired right. I want then to sketch very briefly um, 
an account of innate right that treats it effectively as a natural right, and I want then to sketch equally briefly an account of innate right that treats it as not a natural right, but as uh, something much more formal. So I don't know whether I can do all this, but that's the plan. <laughs> what was the first step? Does anyone be paying attention? Um, I think the first step was my saying something more about innate right. Um, so ideally you would have had the text in front of you, um, but apparently I omitted to do something that I should have done. I should have sent the text somewhere and you could have got electronic copies of it. But listen, I will just read it to you now, um, where the passage where Kant says there's only one innate right. Just listen to it. I think a lot of it will just be over your heads, a lot of it is over my head, it doesn't matter. Uh, this is, uh, so I will just now read you the passage that I'm supposedly talking to in this session. And this passage occurs in the introduction to the doctrine of right. And the introduction to the doctrine of right is of course not the doctrine of right, yeah? It is the introduction. I mean, it's, it, 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 it concerns the things you need to know before you turn to the doctrine of right. So, he says, there is only one innate right. Freedom, independence from being constrained by another's choice, insofar as it can coexist with the freedom of every other in accordance with the universal law, is the only original right belonging to every man by virtue of his humanity. This principle of innate freedom already involves the following authorizations, which are not really distinct from it. Innate equality, that is, independence from being bound by others to more than one can in turn bind them. Hence, a human being's quality of being his own master, sui iuris, as well as being a human being beyond reproach, justi, since before he performs any act affecting rights, he has done no wrong to anyone. And finally, he is being authorized to do to others anything that does not in itself diminish what is theirs, so long as they do not want to accept it, it, it blah, blah, blah. So that's the innate right. So the innate right, there's only one, um, and it's the right to freedom understood as independence from another's arbitrary choice. That's what the innate right is. So we each have a, an innate right to freedom, meaning we have an innate right to being independent of another's arbitrary choice of us, i.e. Um, it means that no one is naturally entitled or no one is innately entitled to exercise authority over us. That's what, what the right to independence is. Independence from another's arbitrary power of choice, meaning independence from another's arbitrary exercise of their will over us. Yeah? That's the right that we have. And then there are some authorizations whatever that means, that attach to this and that are not really distinct from it. So one puzzle, of course, is then immediately, well, if there's only one innate right, why are there so many things that seem to be attached to it, you know? Why are they not really distinct from it? So that would be one puzzle, which I, I, I won't go into here. Um, the, the more immediate puzzle is what he then says. He says, with regard to what is innately, hence internally, mine or yours, there are not several rights, there is only one right, well we know that. Since this highest division consists of two members very unequal in content, innate right and acquired rights, it can be put in the prolegomena and the division of the doctrine of right can refer only to what is externally mine or yours. 
Okay, so that's a mouthful if you've never done, if you've never, if you've never done it. Um, but what he's basically saying here is that there is innate right and there is acquired right. And the innate right refers to what belongs to you innately, what is internally yours. Acquired rights are acquired. They are rights over external things, things that are external to you. And he uh, says the highest division of rights consists of the distinction between innate right and acquired rights. And then he says there's only one innate right, the freedom as independence from another's arbitrary power of choice. And then he says, since there is only one, we can disregard the innate right for the purposes of the doctrine of right. Because the doctrine of right deals only with what is externally mine or yours. So the puzzle here is that, well, if we can disregard it in what follows, why mention it in the first place? Yeah? Why mention it in the introduction if all you're going to tell us in the introduction is that, well, for the main purpose of what I'm going to say, we can just disregard um, what I just said. So that's, that's the thing that puzzles a lot of people, um, uh, that the mention of, there is mention of innate right in the, in the introduction to the doctrine of right. Uh, quite a lot of hoo-ha is made about it, you know, these authorizations that are attached to it and all of that. And then we're told, and by the way, we're, not going, to, we're, not, we're going to now disregard it. And then the doctrine of right is, as I said at the outset, solely concerned with acquired right. The justification of property rights and what follows from it in terms of political obligations. So, if you wanted to sort of take this more scholarly approach, then the challenge would, would be for one to show that there is a connection between innate right and acquired right, even though innate right is not part of a doctrine of right. Yeah? Um, the, 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 there has to be, so you have to somehow take seriously both Kant's claim that there is some kind of relationship between them and the claim that for the purposes of the doctrine of right, we can dis discard uh, the innate right. And that's, that's the scholarly puzzle, I think, and that's one reason why relatively little work has been done on it, because it's, it's a rather delicate thing. Enter the normative Kantians, <coughs> every scholar's nemesis. Because, of course, they are not so, they're not so fussed about where it's said and how it's said and all of that. Um, they are more interested in, uh, in a sense, deriving certain normative conclusions that are useful to us from something that Kant says. So the trend in the normative literature, not the scholarly literature, but the more general, Kant, uh, the more general political theory, political philosophy literature, would not... In a, in a way would not typically be terribly struck by the fact that innate right is stated in the introduction and then not again in the main text. That wouldn't be something that would terribly concern them. And there is something, there is something you know, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to diss that, um, because Kant says an awful lot of things in the introduction that, properly speaking, shouldn't actually be in the introduction, but arguably should be in the, in the main text. Yeah? But nonetheless, given that, it, that he does, it, it's worth taking seriously. However, um, the normative Kant interpretation, as I've already just outlined to you, tends to say, well, okay, innate right is a kind of right that... Um, we don't need to do anything in order to have it. 
it's a right which we have without a, an act that, require, uh, that establishes it. So what is it? It's a natural right. And it's a right to what? Well, it's a right to freedom, Kant says. So uh, there's a tendency to say that um, Kant starts with a premise that we each have a natural right to freedom. And one particular example of this kind of um, reading is to some extent given by uh, a recent text, Force and Freedom, by Arthur Ripstein. To some extent, because actually I think Ripstein is very ambivalent between um, uh, having a foundationalist reading of innate right or a more relational reading. But I just now here treat him as though he were an advocate of this natural rights conception. So in so doing, I'm doing him a little bit injustice, injustice. But uh, but since <laughs> since I don't think you'll be going off and writing essays on this thing, I, I think that's okay. Uh, it's it's just uh, simpler if I treat him as somebody who is unambivalently attached to the notion of innate right as a natural right. Um, and I just want to indicate where this leads, yeah, in terms of the property rights argument. So I want to show that if you commit yourself to reading the innate right as a natural right that we simply have in virtue of being human beings, this will influence how you read the property rights argument, given that there is some connection between them. We don't know what the connection is precisely, but we do know that there is some sort of connection between them. And so one of the things that Ripstein um, says is that when Kant says that um, uh, we each have an innate right to independence from being constrained by another's choice, that is the same thing as saying we have an innate right um, to exercise our capacity for purposiveness. And by this he means, uh, by the capacity for purposiveness, he means uh, our capacity to set and choose our own ends, roughly. So basically, um, uh, Ripstein is suggesting that when Kant says that we have an innate right to independence from the arbitrary power of choice of another, that is the same thing as saying we have an innate right to exercise our own power of choice. And that means, then in a more extended sense, we have an innate right to choose and pursue whatever ends we set ourselves. And so the claim is independence from another's arbitrary will and uh, uh, pursuing one's own uh, choices are the same thing. And Ripstein finds evidence for this in Kant's claim that attached to the innate right, i.e. not really distinct from it, is this quality of each being their own master. So he, he then suggests that to be your own master is to be someone who sets and pursues their own purposes. So what in effect he's doing, and again I must stress this is just part of uh, Ripstein's argument that I'm lifting out of some rather uh, more complicated, richer argument. But what in effect he seems to be saying, if one reads them just in that, in that vein, is to say that we have an innate right um, to freedom because we have an innate capacity to pursue our own ends. And that's what I would call a foundationalist reading. In a sense, it, 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 it gives you uh, a property of ours or a capacity of ours that we supposedly have innately, i.e. an inborn capacity of ours, that is the ground of the rights that we have. Yeah? 
And, the, uh, and that's the foundationalist approach in the sense that it says there is this capacity and this capacity is, the, is, is from this capacity follows, uh, follows our innate right to freedom. And so on Ripstein's reading, the innate right to freedom gives us innate powers of control over everything that we own innately, or over everything that, um, that, we, uh, that, yeah, that is ours innately. For instance, our bodies, according to Ripstein, is something that we own innately. Our talents is something that we own innately. Um, our in intellectual powers is something that we own innately. And the exercise of our powers uh, and talents on this account is something that we don't need to justify to anyone, given that we simply have them innately. We have an innate right to it. So we don't, this right does not stand in need of justification to anyone, because we simply have it. Yeah? Similarly, he says, uh, we have this innate right to our body, meaning that we have powers of control over it, and anyone who tries to control our body instead of us is doing us an injustice, is interfering with us. And I've always found that men find that thought more intuitive than women. I think that um, uh, for, uh, for women, often the thought that we own our bodies is less intuitive. But Ripstein isn't generally appealing to a, to a, to a thought that, that many do find intuitive, that we have, that if anyone owns our bodies, it is we ourselves. Of course, one could think that um, that whole thing begs the question, because one could say that no one owns our bodies, including ourselves. Yeah? And I think this is where I would, in a different scenario, try to put some pressure on uh, um, Ripstein's claim that a right to independence and a right to purposiveness are the same thing. I do not think it's the same thing to say that you have a right uh, that others do not tell you what to do. I don't think that that claim is the same as saying you have a right to, to do as you see fit. Um, that depends on assuming that there is someone who has a right um, to do all these things. And given that it's not anyone else, it can only be you. Yeah? But that's an additional premise which he doesn't argue for. So I think there's, there's a problem with that. But I, uh, I'd be very happy to discuss this in, in, um, later on, because I'm a bit unsure about this. But I, know, I saw a couple of people sort of nodding, so maybe they have that, that intuition. Now, the, um, let, let's just say, so Ripstein has this view that um, by innate right, Kant in effect means um, a kind of a, a peculiar, um, a, a peculiar form of innate possession. In effect, he, he denies that this is this is what he means. He denies that he um, it means that we have a property right in persons in our own person, but he does seem to suggest that the innate right asserts certain um, uh, powers and capacities of uh, self-control. <coughs> i.e. controlling our own destiny, which we don't need to justify. And he then has this picture whereby if we each just exercised our innate right, i.e. our powers of control over our own body and our own talents, we wouldn't need the state, because we would each be sovereign with regard to ourselves. And we, wouldn't, we, we shouldn't get in each other's way, um, and if we do, we can exercise self-defense. The problem for, for Ripstein enters with the right to property, because of course that is when we do get in, into uh, each other's way, because uh, look at this bottle, 
no one owns it, I come and I say this bottle is mine, uh, and in so doing I say, uh, and you are now obliged to refrain from doing anything with this bottle, because it is now mine. Yeah? Then I'm actually interfering with your freedom, because I've now deprived you of a possible object of your choice. And by what rights have I done this? You know, how can I just come along and say, and by the way, this is mine, meaning, and by the way, you have no power of choice over this anymore. This for Kant is a, prob is a problem because, of course, you could equally have come along and said, and by the way, this is mine. And then you and I could have got involved in a property dispute with one another. Um, and then the stronger would have won, presumably. Um, but then, unless we say that might is right, we haven't established that this bottle belongs to you rather than me. Uh, we have just established that you are the stronger of the two of us. So, for Kant, the fact that, and for Ripstein, for Kant, the fact that in contrast to our own person, <coughs> there is a possible dispute about whose this is, means that there has to be a civil power established that resolves these kind of disputes, because we can't resolve them uh, by rights between ourselves. We can only uh, resolve them uh, in the form of a, of a contest of, of power between ourselves. And Ripstein explains this aspect of Kant's property rights as basically driven by a concern that each be able to extend their innate right to freedom over a domain that covers external objects. So in Ripstein's account of innate right, you have to envisage that um, you are someone who innately, uh, who has an innate right over themselves, over what they do with their body and how they employ their talents. And that gives you a limited sphere of freedom, uh, of, inna of, of, of innate freedom, yeah? a limited uh, sphere of just innate freedom. But it's very limited. And so it would be good to have a bit more freedom, let's just say. Um, and so then you say, it would be good if I could also have control over this. That requires a type of justification for, for Ripstein and Kant that is... Uh, that innate right does not require, because now you're going into the external world, now you're laying claim to objects of choice that others could potentially uh, lay, uh, claim to. And so that requires the, the state. But the basic point here is that it looks as though for Ripstein, the property argument is designed to extend your domain of freedom of choice and action from innate right to external right. For that you need the state, but the idea here is let's increase that over which you have free power of choice. Yeah? Let's increase it from your innate right to a domain of external objects. <laughs> I don't like this. I don't like this because I don't think that Kant's property argument um, has really much to do with giving people maximum possible freedom of choice and action. I think Kant's property argument has more to do with getting people into the civil condition. So one way of reading Kant is to say that the state is a means to securing individual property rights. Yeah? We require the state to resolve property um, disputes between you and I, and so the state is justified insofar as it makes it possible for us to resolve our property disputes. So uh, the state exists uh, for the purpose of um, uh, resolving our property disputes and making us freer as a result. An alternative way would be to say that 
we have property disputes because we have an obligation to enter into the state. So property disputes are just a way of getting us into the state. And I prefer that reading of Kant for reasons that I can't go into. But this, this gives me um, one reason why I don't like the account of the relationship between innate right and acquired right that, that I've just sketched here. Yeah? It leads to a view of the state as, a, as an instrument for increasing um, our external freedom. I don't think that Kant has such an instrumental conception of the state. I think he has a conception of, this, of the state as an end in itself, as it were. So let me then turn to an alternative reading of innate right, very briefly, um, where I don't treat the innate right as some kind of foundational right that gives me in particular claims over my body, um, which I do not need to justify to anyone. I think there's nothing in the passage that I've read out to you that invokes bodily rights, for instance. There's nothing in the passage that I've read out to you that invokes purposiveness, the notion of purposiveness. There's nothing that speaks about talents. All of this is imported from somewhere else by the Ripstein-type argument. It's not, it, it's not, it doesn't come out of the text. When we turn to the text, what we find, rather, is this weird uh, claim that to this innate right to freedom as independence from being <coughs> constrained by another's choice are attached several authorizations. Um, let me read them out to you again. So, freedom is the only innate right that we have, and freedom is to be understood as independence from being constrained by another's choice. So no one has natural authority over us. That's basically what it means. We have a right that no one exercises natural authority over us. Then he says, this principle of innate freedom already involves the following authorizations which are not really distinct from it. So they're analytically contained, if you like, in the, uh, in the uh, um, uh, innate right to freedom. Innate equality, that is independence from being bound by others to more than one can in turn bind them, hence a human being's quality of being his own master, as well as being a human being beyond reproach, since before he performs any act affecting rights, he has done no wrong to anyone, and finally, he's being authorized to do to others anything that does not in itself diminish what is theirs, so long as they do not want to accept it. Now, it seems to me here that instead of mentioning innate talents or powers of choice over our bodies, what he is mentioning here is certain... Um, certain relational qualities between, between persons. He's not, pe he's not speaking of innate capacities that we each have. He's rather saying uh, there are certain relations that ought to or that obtain um, uh, between us uh, when we claim an innate right. For instance, the relation of um, not being bound by, another, uh, by, uh, by others to more than one can in turn by them. So there's a, a relation of reciprocity going on, yeah? Um, you have no more authority over me than I have over you. Uh, then the quality of being um, your own master, uh, in brackets, um, uh, sui iuris, um, that is the quality of being held accountable for your actions. And again, uh, then the quality of... Um, uh, of being beyond reproach since, since he, before he performs an action affecting rights, he has done no wrong to anyone. That's the quality of not being held responsible for actions that you haven't committed. 
So what you, what you get, I think, when you look at this, is um, a, certain, uh, a certain conception of juridical status that is supposed to be contained in the innate right uh, to freedom. So it's not, um, the claim then would not be that uh, the innate right to freedom is grounded in certain innate capacities that you have, but the innate right to freedom affirms a certain um, juridical relation in which you stand to with others. <coughs> the relation of not being um, governed by them, the relation therefore of being capable of being held for your own, responsible for your own actions, um, and the relation of reciprocity in the sense of contract. You can't bind one to more than they can in turn bind you. So it seems to me what's being affirmed here is that each has an innate right to being treated by everyone else as um, someone who is their juridical equal, who is their equal before the law, if you like. That is what the innate right affirms on this alternative reading, not some natural right grounded in some innate capacities that gives us some natural powers over ourselves. What's really being affirmed here is that each has, an, uh, has a claim that requires no act on their part to being treated by others in a certain way, as a juridical subject, as a possible bearer of rights, you might say. So that's the alternative reading to, of innate right that I want to propose to you. It's a relational reading, not a foundational reading. Found, uh, uh, relational in the sense that it can only operate between, between persons. On a foundational reading of right, you could have a right and no one could be around, yeah? Uh, because your right would be grounded in a certain capacity that you have. And you, might, uh, you would have that capacity irrespective of whether or not <laughs> others are in the vicinity. So you might have that, uh, uh, you, might, you might have a right uh, grounded in a capacity for purposiveness and others being around or not doesn't matter, doesn't affect your having that right. But if you, have a, if you conceive of rights relationally, then you can't have a right or you can't raise rights claims unless, unless you stand uh, in uh, relations of coexistence with others. So that's the difference, yeah? So it's a relation, it's a... It's a it's a kind of moral relation that's being defined here, not a capacity. Now, let me just very briefly say a couple of words about uh, how that affects the property argument, and then, and then I'll, I, I'll, I think I'll just stop. And here I'm, um, I'm coming back to this idea. So now we know, <laughs> now we know what he means by innate right, uh, where he says it. Yeah, but we still don't know. Um, what the relation is between innate right and acquired right. And remember, that relationship is complicated by the fact that Kant says, I'll mention the innate right in the introduction, but I'll throw it out uh, of the rest of the, of the text. Yeah? So, so what the relationship is needs in some sense to, to account for the <coughs> fact that the innate right is in the introduction, but not in the rest of the text. And here I will speak very speculatively now because I'm not sure and it's just a thought but I think what's going on is that so what I want to say is that the innate right is a purely formal relation yeah? all the specifications of innate right um, uh, uh, being held responsible for your own actions not being held responsible for actions you haven't committed 
binding uh, one another reciprocally, um, being independent uh, of another's uh, arbitrary power of choice. There is no, there is no substance here. Yeah, it's just a purely formal relationship. There is no uh, substance uh, like property rights is full of substance, but this kind of relation is a is a purely formal <coughs> one. In Kant speak, it's therefore a purely intelligible relationship. It's not a relationship that instantiates itself in the world. It's an intelligible relationship. It's in the head. It's a purely moral relationship. But it needs expression in the world. It needs to be, ex it needs to be given some kind of material <coughs> expression in the world. Because if it isn't, <laughs> we haven't got politics. So you could say that the innate right is a formal presupposition of the possibility of property rights. But property rights are the material instantiation of what are in principle purely formal moral relations. So let me say that a property right for Kant is the empirical instantiation of a purely formal moral relationship. And in that sense, um, you could say that um, property rights for Kant um, are, the, are the empirical realization of innate right. Now, why, the, uh, and this, this would give you some idea of why it's not in the main text of the doctrine of right, because the doctrine of right is concerned with practical lawmaking, it's concerned with public lawmaking. Now, an innate right, if it's purely formal, cannot be a direct object of public lawmaking. Property rights can be a medium for public lawmaking. Um, but uh, property rights for Kant uh, are in turn um, possible only under the presupposition of innate right. Let me just very quickly say why that is the case. Um, uh, uh, by means of returning to this, to this uh, argument a minute ago. So we have this object here. It's an unowned object, res nullius. No one owns it yet. And so several of us think, oh, I could, yeah, I like this. And so we come and we say, oh, I'll take this, this is mine. And of course that begs the question. It begs the question, why can I say this is mine? Why can't you equally say this is yours? Yeah, so we have this property dispute. And the interesting feature here is that we couldn't have this property dispute. We couldn't dispute uh, about the ownership, about the rightful ownership of this, unless we, um, unless we claimed uh, juridical equality from one another. Unless we claimed that your word is as good as mine. Yeah? You have no natural authority over me, so you can't simply affirm that this is now yours, thereby excluding me from further use of it, because that's of course an arbitrary exercise of power of choice over you. So when there is a property rights dispute, then for Kant, this signals that there is a claim to innate right. You could imagine that uh, there are people perhaps, I don't know, our ancestors in the monarchy, I don't know, who might have thought there are some people who are naturally superior to me, you know, and I'm naturally inferior. And if these naturally superior people come along and they say, this is now mine and you can shut up, then I will shut up because they're naturally superior. So under this scenario, um, uh, you, you don't have the claim to innate equality. But where you have a property dispute, there you have indication that people claim um, 
innate equality against one another. So here the claim would be that um, innate right is a necessary presupposition of the possibility of acquired rights. That's it. I, I said at the beginning that uh, one way of thinking about the massive significance of Kant is to think of it in terms of this letter X where there's both the uh, synthesizing work of bringing together things that went before him to the singularity of Kant and then after Kant the kind of unbelievable indebtedness of this all to, to that singularity. Um, there's a feature that uh, Catherine brought in uh, which should complicate this but makes it much more interesting which is that this singularity that I'm describing here belongs in a temporal sequence behind us and the bottom V as it were is the, the flowing out of that historical moment but actually the reason why I think that the bottom V is there at all is because this singularity rather than being something that we've got our minds round and we can now go on mm. after him, it's because that singularity actually still lies ahead of us. That Kant remains to be read, as you were saying, mm. you know, I'm still trying to get my head round this. That means that Kant isn't finished. Right? Kant is on the, on the contrary still for us something uh, demanding, calling us to, to read and so the, the history here is complicated. It's, Kant is not our past. Kant at this moment remains something for you to move towards and ahead of us. So that's a, uh, I don't know how that would uh, work with my ex, but it, it means that the singularity of that historical point is not a, a moment in history behind us. That was incredibly interesting. Um, thank you so much. Now, we do have time for some questions, and I've already seen hands going up. Yours went straight up straight away, so I think you can go. Uh, thank you. Um, it was a very interesting lecture. I have sort of two questions if I, if I can. Yeah. The first thing is, is when you were talking about you know the right to own your own body and you were giving that type of um, example, do you mean the right to own your own body in the inalienable form, or would you go further and say that that, that you would allow uh, suicide or, or not allow suicide? I mean, it, 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 you know, that's that's one question. Mm -hmm. And then the second question is the business of acquired rights when you were talking about the bottle. I, I was trying to think of. Um, you know, how that might fit in with, say, like the Nozickian idea of sort of uh, entitlement yeah. to, to, to something or yeah. other. Or is there any type of relationship between between that or, or, or not? Is it completely you know, different? So those are two, two things I'd like to can, can you just say a little bit more about what you mean so by entitlement? So you, you, you the bottle argument, you, you say you started thinking about Nozickian entitlement. Yeah, what I mean, what, what I mean is, is that... <coughs> Well, if you say if you take like the the, the Lockean idea yeah. that you've got to leave the enough and as good, yes, uh, so and then comes down to was it correctly tra or correctly transferred to you? Yeah, you know, in other words, yeah. how do you own it? You own it because it, it was there and you took it, you did some work on it, or, or it was properly transferred to you yeah. by someone else who properly owned it. That type of idea, you know, from an unowned entity. I mean, you know, yeah. so that's that, that's what I mean. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, Maybe I'll start with that, because because that's where we've ended up right now. Um, so I, I think it's very, I think it's a very interesting question because I think that it brings out something that I kind of take for granted by now, and um, that one wouldn't if one hadn't 
sort of uh, worked on this for a while, um, which is that, so I take for granted this idea that um, property rights have nothing to do with needs. Uh, and they have nothing to do with um, uh, use, you know, using stuff. They have to do with a, a, a type of moral relation between persons. In other words, if it were about needs and entitlements based on needs, um, we wouldn't need private property. We could do it some other way. Yeah, we could just fulfil needs in some in some other way. Whereas in Nozick's Lockean account. There is this, uh, there is this um, he doesn't, of course, of course, Nozick doesn't speak about needs, he speaks about entitlements. But there is this assumption that, as you, as you mentioned, um, you can acquire something from the unowned uh, uh, sort of stuff around you, and that's quite all right to do so long as you leave um, as good as uh, and enough for others. So the assumption here is that no one is going to be affected by your taking this, if you leave enough over. Um, and then, of course, it becomes very complicated after that. But the Kantian claim is that, no, whenever you take something, no matter how much is left, you do, in fact, affect others through your action. And the, and the, but how you affect them is not that you take something that they might have needed. Uh, um, the way in which you affect them is to say, this is mine, and I have authority over you with regard to this. So you affect their power of choice, not their needs or their entitlements. I don't know whether this has answered your question at all, but I think I would say that, um, does it have to do with entitlements? I think not obviously. Um, I think, of course, entitlements come into it, but it's not, that's not the basic thought. The basic thought is that we need to find a way in which we can coexist in a way um, that allows us to exercise our power of choice without um, exercising it over others. So property rights are not an entitlement in that sense. They're a means to doing something else. They're a means to enabling us to coexist um, uh, with each making use of our freedom of choice and action. But entitlement is, of course, a very, very strong, um, uh, strong association with rights. So <coughs> Kant would also say that if you have a right in X, you are entitled to do with it as you please. But that's a thought that comes further down the line, as it were. That's a thought that comes once you have a right. It's not something that comes... Um, uh, at the moment when you're trying to justify the right. It's not something you can't say, I'm entitled to X and therefore I have a right to it. Uh, that's more the sort of uh, Lockean claim. With regard to suicide and ownership of body, I think there's, I mean, I think that um, uh, there's a, you could think of it as a sort of continuum, yeah? There are people who, there are people who say we do have um, ownership of, uh, over our body, but it's restricted. So it stops well short of suicide, let's say. In fact, for most political theorists that I know, it stops short of selling yourself into slavery. And of course, there is arguably an inconsistency here that needs to then be um, uh, clarified, you know, because arguably you could say, well, if we really do own ourselves, then why not sell ourselves or why not kill ourselves? And some people, of course, um, uh, uh, would say, yes, uh, we should have this right, and others would have complicated arguments as to why it's not inconsistent. 
But of course, Kant, for Kant, we don't own ourselves. Okay, uh, one here and then one here, then one there, one there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I just wondered, according to Kant, then Hitler's art teacher might be not responsible for the Second World War. Because if um, Hitler's art teacher had said, you know, Hitler was a good artist, then of course the World War would have, might have been averted. And I've got something else. Um, you know, shopkeepers, are they the masters of them, their time, themselves? Because having worked as a shop assistant, it's about 12 hours or 14 hours. Yeah. And are um, sexual slaves the master of their own bodies? And, you know, have we, do we truly have choice? And, you know, do wives own themselves? Or do their husbands own? Or do parents own them? Well, I mean, I think that um, I think that when I when I listen to your list, you know, then I, in a way, I think that what you're saying is that um, uh, the range or the range of our choices is in fact far, far smaller than we intuitively like to think, yeah? That, there are, that in, in, in our lives, choice plays far less of a role than we're always told it does. Um, I think maybe that's, that's a thought. And, and equally, I suppose, so with, especially with self-ownership. I mean, if you do really own yourself, um, then I would have <laughs> thought that certain um, medical situations become highly problematic. Yeah. Um, uh, and people, of course, will often say that, for instance, um, children, of course, don't own themselves because they, they're in a minority. But when you are <coughs> grown up, then you own yourself. And then you might think, yes, and then when you, when you grow older again and become more reliant on others' help, does that then mean that you no longer own yourself? So, so these kind of arguments put pressure on this idea of self-ownership. So would an uneducated person who has to do manual work all day long yeah. be the same as an educated person who could do fairly what they want? And you know that's an equality which, which no one really has really because most of the population, the world population, yeah. they're into things like bondage and all that. And you know, if you're if you're in certain sects of religions and you know yeah. you have to do certain things and you're not responsible. And then there's lots of you know people selling themselves for profit, yeah. and they're not really. And then there's you know working for some employer who is exploiting you, uh, which is what we are doing to some people in Asia or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose that I in a way what you're talking about here are modes of self-ownership or modes of non-ownership yeah, over yeah, self, yeah. which is not directly um, okay. uh, relevant, but you could, you could say that people who read the innate right in the way in which I first outlined, yeah, as giving you these powers of control, um, one criticism could be that um, in reality, that's a far less plausible uh, self-conception than it might look in theory, because our because our control over ourselves is so constrained, uh, and for, for for some people, of course, more so than for others. Because if you're a woman and you have really trouble, you know, it's really about ownership of the woman uh, of your body. I don't think as a woman you have that much ownership yeah. of yourself. For example, if you refuse someone really important, you might have even less ownership than you thought. But I mean, I okay, know. I think we got the point about ownership. Yeah. No, I think you should just come back one more time on 
on the thought that you said that you don't want to think of this in terms of ownership. And so how does the, the formal reading relate to these sort of gross inequalities and also uh, issues around relations between persons turning into relations of property? Well, so on the formal reading, you wouldn't have a substantive notion of equality. So you wouldn't say, um, you know, we should each have the same amount of X or something like that. You would have a notion of, uh, and given that we're dealing with the, with the doctrine of right, I, so we're only dealing with a small part of morality, uh, that part of morality that can be legislated on. So you would, as it were, the, the sense of equality that's probably at, at stake here is something like equality before the law. And of course that, uh, that eliminates certain inequalities, but not all of them. Mm -hmm. And I think um, it's these, uh, um, it's these uh, formal inequalities, some are, uh, some are superior um, uh, than, some are naturally superior than others, um, uh, that can't really address us. But material inequalities, I don't really see him as addressing. Okay, good, thank you. Um, who's here? <coughs> well, drawing on your assumption that uh, the, the innate rights, they are not natural rights. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They are independent of the relationship with others. Yeah. Perhaps you could say that innate rights are political rights. I mean, it or at least that they are on the foundation of politics, of the praxis. Yes. And um, well, trying to understand the difference of why Kant lives behind in its rights. Yeah. Perhaps you could say that um, acquired rights and property rights yes. have more to do with the, the economical sphere. Yes. Well, also, so, but also with the legislative. So you have two different spheres. Meaning, property, uh, politics and economics. Politics and economics. I mean, if you speak about uh, economics, you speak about ends. Mm -hmm. And if you speak about politics, you speak about means. Mm -hmm. I mean, praxis or policies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So perhaps, well, it's just trying to yes. understand how to live together. Yeah. Perhaps that's the reason, because we are changing the sphere. Do you, we are changing from politics to yeah. economics. Yeah. When, when did you deal about, about uh, I, I'm, I'm not entirely um, sure of that. I mean, I think I'm, I would go along much more with your um, initial statement that Kant maybe thinks of rights as political rather than natural. But I don't know that he thinks of uh, property rights in an economic sense. Mm. I think he thinks of them more as um, that... Um, that material conception of rights by means of which we can legislate. So we can, as it were, so think of contract law. You can, you can uh, specify what contract law is once you have property that changes hands. And it's not just this kind of property, but it's also contract law that he's interested in. So I would say that um, Kant is actually not concerned with economics. Though I would, I mean, I would, I would, Say that. Um, so he's more concerned with, the legis with, with legislating property rights, but of course there's a connection then between that and economics. Exactly. I think that's that's definitely the case. Yes, of course. But uh, but he is here. I think more concerned with 
um, the powers of the state that the uh, the powers that the state can um, can um, employ over persons by means of regulating property. So it's a legislative notion of property, I think, more than the economic one that's going that's going on. Okay, good. Uh, I think we're here, and then there was somebody over there. Yeah, that's right. So I thought it was a very interesting talk. Thank you very much. Um, I was very quickly starting to think in dualities. I was thinking uh -huh. about his or hers, yours or mine. Uh -huh. uh, uh, you know, I own it or you own it. Yeah. How does this kind of sort of idea of relational versus foundational sit within this whole debate of open source and this whole debate of the commons? Where it's neither yours nor mine, but it's ours. But yeah. How do you how do you come to this kind of argument from those two different perspectives? Do you mean um, so? Do you mean how does um, foundational and relational sit to common? Yeah. I mean, for instance, I mean, if you take like uh, it's my I say it's my idea. Yeah. I, I own this idea. Yeah. So the whole thing, you know, it's like, or is it actually, or should we open up the source? Should it be something that we can both build on, both work with? Yeah. You know, the whole software yeah. kind of open source kind of debate. Right. Um, it, it, you know, if you take if you take this and if you think about this whole note of sort of innate right to mm -hmm. ours as opposed to to mine, <coughs> to me as opposed to I. Yes. So, are you saying that then? So are you saying that might be a different way in which to think about property, or are you saying that might be a way in which to think about something other than property? Well, there's something peculiarly singular about your argument. So it's you know it's either my body mm. or it's your body. Yes. Um, yeah. And that that may well be the case. But mm. what if it's our body? And what's the innate right to it being our body? I mean, what's the sort of the kind of the collectivist argument, you know, for kind of collective rights? Um, to be honest, I don't know. I just don't know. I, and I think I probably wouldn't, uh, I probably wouldn't get the innate right involved there at all. I think I would... So there's no innate right to ask collectively owning the air, the water? Well, if you, so, okay, so if you were, if you were, um, if you were, as it were, someone who thinks there are some things that we own innately, and we're, and we're in that sense a foundationalist, yeah? Even in the relational way, way that, you know, that, you know, we can only exist collectively if we kind of yeah. come to a but that would be a form of, of that, yeah, but that would, I think, be a form of property right and not innate right, yeah? Um, so you might say that would be um, simply because the air is external to us, let's say, yeah? Um, whereas innate right refers to that which is... But what about our DNA? I mean, there was this whole race about, you know, yeah. kind of decoding the DNA. Yeah. Now it gets very complicated because now I'm uh, now I'm inclined to say, well, yes, sir, but that's just our phenomenal self, and not our luminous. <laughs> 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 yeah. um, so that's another yes, yes. Um, but I, I mean, I think that I think this this idea of what we refer to as ours is an is an interesting thought, and it's gone pretty much by the wayside, I think, because the rise of private property. Um, has been an, an, a long, ongoing process in, in the history of political thought. But of course, certain people, Grotius brings to mind, started with this idea that originally uh, it was ours, and then we started dividing it. And why did we? Well, efficiency arguments to, to some degree. But one might say, why shouldn't we try to think um, uh, again a bit more about possible common possessions? 
this is a proper argument in economic terms, but when right. it comes to air, when it comes to yes. the sea, no, that's probably good. To, yes. you know, outer space, when it comes to mm. our DNA, <laughs> The efficiency argument doesn't hold anymore. No, that's true. And of course, these would be public goods. These would be publicly owned goods precisely because they're indivisible. Yeah, you can't really, well, maybe now you can, but uh, we once used to think you can't divide the air. I think you can now. I mean, sort of airspace and all that sort of stuff. Um, but so these would be classic public goods, which you cannot own privately, which you can only hold in common. Again, it's not something that Kant is uh, concerned with. Um, it's not something that he therefore uh, needs to rule out. But I think that ultimately he's concerned with political obligation, not with property. As I said, I think property rights are just a means to talking about political obligation. But I think it's an interesting thought that you raise about this idea of, well, how do we theorize stuff that we owe, that we own, not stuff that I or you own. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I heard you say that the idea of inert rights from our ability to our innate ability to choose. Mm -hmm. So I have a problem with the choice. Mm -hmm. What about if we have the wrong choice? And that does this implies there is human perfection. Therefore we we know we have inner rights and therefore the conclusion is we have uh, the ability to choose the right things. Or if there is Yeah, so, um, so, I, so I do not myself think that we have an innate right to choose. And I don't think Kant thinks this. But, but I, did, um, I did talk about a position that attributes that view to Kant. So, so, so that's the view that you mean. That there is a view that says by innate right, Kant means our innate right to choose, to do whatever it is. Now, I think that most people who are of this view would not think that it implies perfection because I think most people would say that if you have this innate right to choose then that includes a right to choose to do the wrong thing you know it includes the right to choose bad badly and then carry the carry the consequences you know accept the consequences of that it's interesting because I think that um, the sort of perfectionist view that you're alluding to would typically not make an awful lot of rights they would typically make more of certain virtues um, that we are supposed to exercise and perfect. Uh, they would typically try not to invoke rights, and I think it's precisely because of the close association between rights and entitlements, yeah, uh, so that if you talk about rights, then you should have an entitlement not to do the good thing, yeah? You should have an entitlement to... to, um, to um, to choose badly or to act badly. The right to do wrong. The right to do wrong, yeah. yeah. Okay. If the foundation depends on the reasons, like uh, John Locke argues, through reason we discover the purpose, yeah. therefore we obey, but if we don't, yeah. that's the thing. Um, yeah. This also goes with that sort of thing, or it's completely So are you now saying so if. Well, that's 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 um, that's.
that's a good question. You know, I mean, uh, so in Kant, for instance, what tells us, well, in Kant, we don't know whether or not we have an innate right. We only find that we claim an innate right from one another. But we don't know that we have it, we just claim it. We, we discover, when you and I are interacting, we discover that we're making certain claims to a certain form of treatment from one another. A foundationalist, a more foundationalist approach might say that we, we do know that we have an innate right because we can be fairly, or we can be certain that we have a certain capacity and if we didn't have a right that protects that capacity, then um, that capacity would be no good to us. Something like that, yeah? So some people say that we, we do know that we have rights because we do know that we are rational beings and rational beings, we do know, need to be able to uh, decide for themselves. I think on reflection, I think very few people who, are, who, who work in this area would actually commit themselves to saying that we do know that we have rights. Most people would say that more that... Um, uh, we can justify our rights claims. They would not necessarily commit themselves to a strong knowledge claim about rights. They would say we can justify it to one another rather than we have knowledge of the fact. It's like, you know, one can justify to one another a belief in God, let's say, but that's different from saying that one knows that God exists. So similarly, one might say we can give justifications for why we think we have rights, but that's different <coughs> from saying that we know that we have rights. Okay, we've got quite a few hands going up again. Um, there's one here, then one here, then I'll look again. Um, um, oh, yeah, no, it's here, sorry. Sorry, it's, sorry. You'll be three then. <laughs> um, I mean, it just, it just seems to me, surely Kant is not asserting that we have innate rights. Surely he's simply saying that acquired rights only mean something if we acquired them freely. And that's why he didn't write a book about innate rights. He only wrote it as the introduction yeah. to the chapter yeah. about acquired rights. That's all he's saying. <laughs> yeah, but what does it mean to acquire something freely? What he says in the you know, beginning. <laughs> what does he Nobody mean? forced you to do it. I'm not holding a gun to your head to own that bottle. Because if I did hold a gun to your head to own that bottle, your ownership of that bottle would suddenly become very much more complicated. And yeah. his, uh, his, his, what he has to say about acquired rights would suddenly expand into an unmanageable thing. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, I think the problem for, for Kant is not that in claiming that this is mine, I exercise my freedom of choice. The problem for Kant is that... No, just to say, when... If you're going to assert yeah. that this is yours, yeah. you are free in making that assertion. Yes. There aren't any complicating factors forcing you to make that assertion. Yes. That's all. Yes, but the, pro the, the, the moral problem is not that I freely choose this and, and, uh, and make this assertion. That's not his focus. Uh, the moral problem is in my, in, 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 in my exercising my freedom of choice, I compromise your freedom of choice. So the moral problem is that any act of freedom on my part uh, affects, um, affects your freedom. But does he care about that? Yes, that's the, yes, that's the whole, that's, that's, really? the, that's the nature of the property problem in Kant. It's not about, uh, it's not about um, what your choosing does for you, it's about what your choosing does for others. 
it restricts their freedom of choice uh, unavoidably yes um, unavoidably but it's nonetheless morally problematic that it does okay very keen okay. Uh, right yeah uh, thanks for the speech first of all um, I just want to ask you to clarify something on the second reading of Nate rights uh, so the way I understand it is that well, you're you just sort of appearing in the world, and you've done nothing to anyone, and not, no one's done anything to you. Yeah. And just by virtue of nothing being done to you or to anyone else by you, there's some sort of balance. And then this balance, this can't call this balance sort of innate right. And then as soon as an action takes place, no matter who does it, this balance is immediately disrupted. Yes, you and could then, say that, yes. And then does that put some, some sort of obligation on you to sort of enter into the civil condition yes. or enter into government to restore yes. that balance? Not restore that balance, but to, as it were, restoring that balance is, is almost like saying that um, entering into the civil condition makes everything as it was before. But of course it changes everything. Yeah, um, but but the, the general thought the general thought is nonetheless right. There is some kind of restoring of a balance in the sense that now you have public laws and they regulate um, uh, the freedom that each has in an impartial manner and not in an arbitrary manner. So, in, on the second reading, does it suggest that, in a sense, the sort of this innate right, which is the sort of pre pre action balance? Yeah. put an obligation on everybody to collectively enter into sort of a contract and form a state or whatever. Yes, yes. But, but um, as you were saying, when you simply have a innate right and no action, then of course in a certain way um, no obligation is generated. Because there's no action, so, so no, no action, no obligation. But of course we are beings who are, for Kant, agents primarily agents. So action for us is unavoidable. The minute we act, we incur obligations. And we incur, in particular, the obligation to enter into the civil condition. And we incur it because the minute we act, we affect what you call the balance. Yeah? We affect others' um, freedom of choice. And we can't avoid it. So we can't avoid incurring the obligation to enter into the civil condition. I find that very elegant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anywhere, mm -hmm. and you gave like a very lucid example, and I was just wondering if you could sort of elaborate a little bit more one more time where you connected private property rights and the notion that acquiring an item, an economic resources, to borrow as a signal, as sort of a sign of an innate right. Um, right. I mean, so I I don't know what. Um, so I think this may be at the very end where I say, and now I'm very speculative. Um, and I think that. So, you know, as I, as I hinted at the very beginning, the passage that I spend years on is not the innate right passage, but the property passage. And I think I spend years on it because I, it took me a long, long time to understand that Kant's problem is, as I've just said, Kant's problem about property is not to do with our entitlements, but um, the effect of our choices on others. That's the moral problem. We cannot but act, but in acting, we cannot but affect others. You know, um, so that's and I think the property argument, um, what it does, it illustrates a rights dispute. So the property argument says, 
I claim this as mine. I have no license to claim this as mine because in claiming it as mine, I actually impose an obligation on you to desist from further use of it. That's the morally problematic feature of claiming this as mine. In claiming this as mine, I'm saying you are obliged to desist from further use of it. I exercise authority over you. And you therefore resist this. You say, well, who are you to tell me that I can't use this? Yeah? And that, I said, is an indication that property rights presuppose a claim to innate right understood as a claim to juridical equality. So the, so the property dispute, as Kant formulates it, can only get off the ground if you assume or if you presuppose uh, that these agents predicate um, juridical equality of, 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 of themselves. Thank you. Uh, now we're over here, here, and then probably time for one more. Yeah. Yes, please. Thank you. I'm very interested in this relational mm -hmm. idea of the uh, I'm wondering if this leads in the direction of something like uh, basic ways of treating people rather than human rights as we understand it today. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. No, that's exactly. I think I think that's a very very interesting point. A very interesting point. So uh, uh, rights for Kant are ways in which we comport ourselves to one another, and not about certain goods that it would be uh, good for us to have, or goods that we're entitled to, or benefits. I think I think so. So this is an instance you see of giving us. Um, an alternative conception of rights to the one that we are that we're used to, and that's why it's worth struggling with this kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah, uh, one there and then one there. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, I think in terms of you know, first of all, the foundation argument, and, and in a sense, property rights being an extension mm -hmm. of those freedoms. Mm -hmm. Then there, there's the problem, in terms of mentioned earlier, of choices and the definitions of what freedoms are so that you're not infringing on someone else. Yeah. So that can manifest itself in different ways in different countries in terms of how, how, how they define uh, uh, freedom. But the, the point that perhaps has not been mentioned here is, is, is perhaps one of context and the fact that <coughs> perhaps we're not actually free, mm -hmm. that we're merely custodians. And even you know the, the argument of even freedom in a very limited sense of uh, our bodies, you know, it is strenuous because mm -hmm. we have very limited freedoms. I can't suddenly choose that, oh, I'm not going to feel hungry, I'm not going yes. to eat, I'm not yeah. going to breathe, or I'm not going to be sick. So, so our freedoms mm -hmm. indeed are, are very limited, even to the extent that I don't even know how long I will live. So in reality, we're not free at all, that we're all custodians. You know, we're custodians yeah. of our bodies, of resources, yeah. and how we interact. And if we look at it in that particular perspective, then we can see that as custodians, we realize that we're not free and neither are we equal, but someone disabled is not as equal as someone who's mm -hmm. able-bodied. So the notion of that we should treat ourselves the way we would want to be treated now enters into the sphere of fair contracts. Mm -hmm. And perhaps one of the biggest problems we have in the world today is that you're actually allowed to negotiate an unfair contract. 
Because you're saying because of the focus on freedom of choice? Yes, exactly. Right. And, and some right. people's freedoms, as you said, I'm yeah. the king, so I'm more equal than you, so I yeah. can negotiate an unfair contract with you, or colonialism, etc. Yeah. Yeah. And in a sense, that that's really the problem. Yeah. And, so and you have to. You have to talk yeah, sorry. And, and in a sense, if you could yeah. just talk about how we, 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 we overcome this problem of negotiating unfair contracts yeah. in an extension of our freedom. Well, I don't, I don't know that I have a quick answer to this, but I think that in a way what you're saying is perhaps um, the issue here is not freedom of choice, individual freedom of choice, but perhaps the issue is much more um, a certain notion of moral equality, formal moral equality, because as you say that uh, the, the, the disabled person is in certain respects unequal to the able-bodied person, but this would be a material sense of equality. I mean, they lack certain physical capacities, let's say, which render them less capable in certain respects, but that doesn't mean that they're not morally equal um, to the, to the able-bodied person. I'm quite, I mean, I, I'm quite, I'm very sympathetic to this idea that um, uh, this idea of individual freedom of choice is completely overemphasized. Kant is not really, I mean, Kant's conception of freedom is in any case a rather different kettle of fish. Um, it's freedom as a kind of law governedness. Um, so it's, uh, it's not the freedom to do as you please, but it is the, um, it is the freedom to do as the moral law demands of you, you know. And of course many people think that that's quite problematic. But I certainly think that in Kant you get a more, um, you get a, uh, an approach to moral and political thinking that is um, more open to human vulnerabilities than uh, than a lot of the more sort of gang-ho liberal uh, ways of thinking about freedom. But I, I find your, your, your remarks very interesting. Uh, I don't know that I, have a, uh, that I can sort of give you an easy um, response to, to this question, but I certainly think um, Kant's notion of innate equality and law-governed freedom would stress relate the quality of relations between persons over this idea of individual freedom of choice. Okay, uh, I wanted to have more questions, but I'm afraid we've run out of time, which just leaves us to thank Catherine for that incredible conversation.